How are we doing this morning? Good. Uh, my name is Kyle. I, am, I serve as the pastor of Community Life here at Redeemer. It's good to be with you uh, in this Advent season. I want to just uh, encourage you or call you, uh, if you have a Bible, to open up your Bible to Colossians 1, 21 through 23. We're in an Advent series right now going through the first chapter of Colossians, and um, it's been a joy and an encouragement as we look and remember uh, the hope of the gospel, of the baby in the manger. Just also want to encourage you, um, if you're a member here, if this is your church home, just to encourage you to get to know the Moors. Uh, if you don't know them already, they are such a blessing. Their family, Chad, Tanya, their children, um, such a blessing uh, to this church. So I'd encourage you uh, in that if you do not know them already. Um, we're in Colossians 1, 21 through 23. I don't know about you, but if, <laughs> if there was ever a year... Uh, to remember what Advent is all about, wouldn't it be 2020? Um, it has been a trying year for, I would say, all of us. Um, and so to remember the hope of the gospel, what the baby in the manger really is all about, what we're going to be looking at today, that God has reconciled sinners to himself through his blood, through Christ on the cross. Man, don't we need to hear that? Uh, don't we need to hear that in such a trying year as this one. It's interesting, you know, I was talking with someone about Thanksgiving was about a, a month ago and just asking them, how, how, how was your Thanksgiving? And the common uh, phrase is, you know, it was different. And uh, for a lot of them, and probably you and myself, and especially those who like to have big Thanksgivings and enjoy, enjoy family, there's, there's a lot of pain. And this year has brought a lot of pain. And then there are the occasional introvert who says, you know, no one showed up this year, and it was phenomenal. Um, and I won't, I won't say who those people are, uh, but for most of us who enjoy having people in our home and, and really love to be around people, it, it's, been a, it's been a painful one, and all of us would agree with that. But don't we need to re be reminded of the Christmas hope? What uh, God and sinners reconciled. What does that mean? What are the implications of that for my life? And how will that encourage me to follow and obey and to love Jesus more and more? Maybe not just in the Advent season, but for, for maybe all of the entire year, right? Um, that's what we're going to be looking at today. Last week, we looked at um, how he came, right? And, and we've looked at how he came throughout the Colossians series or the Advent series, right? How he came, the incarnation that God came and dwelt among us, right? That word uh, in the Hebrew literally means to tabernacle. If we look at John 1, that, that God in Jesus came and pitched his tent with us, that he dwelt among us. He incarnated with us, right? That's how he came. But today we're going to be looking at why. Why did Jesus come? What was the mission what is all, what's really the baby in the manger? What is it pointing to? And there's one word, reconciliation, right? God and sinners reconciled. We're going to be looking at what that means for us, what that means for a Christian, what that means for a lost world. So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, and then we will pray. We're in Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Colossians 1. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Yeah, holy God, we thank you so much for what this passage says, God, that we in Christ are reconciled, not just that our debt has been paid, but that, God, we have privileges as your children to come fully in, God, that we have privileges as your children to know you, to love you, to draw near to you as a son and daughter does with their father. And God, I pray that, um, that we would believe this, Lord. God, we know that also you are sovereign and that no one is here by accident. And so God, um, if those, those who are in here who are hurting or uh, experiencing suffering, God, would you comfort them? And those who are too reliant on themselves for their right standing with you, God, would you um, convict them of sin and unrighteousness and lead them to repentance in you, God? Lord, we thank you so much uh, just for, for Chad and Tanya and for the Moors, God, and for um, them, Chad, answering the call. And God, we just are so thankful for Advent, the hope that Christmas brings. And so, Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're going to be looking at, Paul really makes a very clear outline in this passage, right? He outlines our old nature. He highlights our new nature. And then he calls us to a persevering hope, right? Our old nature, our new nature, and a persevering hope. Um, we're coming off the heels of Paul talking about um, the preeminence of Christ, right? Chris talked about that last week, about that he is before all things and that all things are to him, through him, through him, and for him. That the supremacy of Jesus is highlighted right before this. And Paul is making one big argument that there is no one like Jesus and that you do not need anything other than Jesus to the Colossian church. Um, he is combating uh, several different, uh, there was one dominant heresy that, that we'll talk about a little bit later, but that Jesus alone is sufficient and more than sufficient. But he also highlights right, right in 21, our old nature and really our condition as a sinful humanity. And our condition is simply this, that apart from Christ, apart from Jesus's initiative to us, that we are left to ourselves, again, apart from Christ, hostile, alienated, and doing evil deeds. This may be stark language to us when we hear this, but it is absolutely true. This is a theme that you will see all throughout the New Testament and specifically here in Colossians. Our old nature, our new nature. Hostile, alienated, doing evil deeds to then holy, blameless, above reproach. How does that happen? The reconciling work of Jesus on our behalf. Something is wrong with the world. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows this. I, in college ministry, I worked with a college ministry on IU's campus. And when I would engage students, 10 times out of 10, you know, every, I've never heard a yes to this question when I would ask and engage students about faith and, and their faith background, I would ask, is the world perfect? Would you say that? And absolutely, it was, of course not. But why? Why? What has happened 
Everybody knows something is wrong with the world, but what is it? It's interesting. Um, in World War II, there was a, uh, a concentration camp in a, a German town called Oldruf. And when the Allied forces conquered the Axis powers and the, world, the, the war started to end, they started to liberate concentration camps. And John Patton came into the town of Oldruf. And John Patton's literal uh, nickname or, you know, John Patton, they would call him John Old Blood and Guts Patton, right? Uh, there's some light words for you. Um, but he would come, he, he came into this town in the very first sight of this concentration camp. He got sick and vomited because of what they saw, the horrors. And it was so bad that he actually called Dwight Eisenhower to come in, which is the president at the time. And so they both come and they see the horrors of this concentration camp. And one of the first things they did was they went to the mayor of this town and they came and they said, you and every citizen are gonna dig graves for the bodies that we have found. And as they were doing this, there was one question that they kept asking the mayor. Why didn't you do something? Why didn't you do something? And their common response was, we had no idea. We had no idea. Two weeks later, Dwight and John, they leave. And then a week after that, the mayor and his wife commit suicide. And they leave a note. And the note said this, we didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. Something similar is true in the world. We may not be able to have an answer some people, maybe even non-Christians say, I don't know what's wrong with the world, but something is wrong. We didn't know, but we knew. We know something is wrong. And the common answer is, it's those people. It's this institution. It's the right. No, it's the left. There's finger pointing all across. But Paul is saying, the problem with the world is sin and that we are sinners, right? That the Bible's emphasis is not so much on what we necessarily do, although Paul certainly highlights sinful acts, but on our condition, on our condition. And that condition leads us to do evil deeds, to be hostile to God, to, to prefer our own will to his, to center our life on ourself, right? Augustine had a doctrine of sin that sin is really the soul curved inward, that the natural propensity of man is to center ourself on ourself. That is what sinful humanity does. But we have remedies, right? We have many remedies that will remedy the world and that Christmas, sometimes, for, for most of the world, we think that this is what Christmas is about. And it's this, just be kind, right? Just be kind. We, we need to just be kind. I was driving around in Bloomington, running some errands, and I saw this sign at least three times. And the sign said, just be kind. Of course, we're not against kindness here, right? Uh, that's a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, right? The, the, the fruit of the Spirit's work will produce kindness. But there's a big problem with that sign. Just, right? Just be kind. That is enough to appease a holy God in our sin. That is enough to reconcile us to a holy God in which we've sinned. And that's wrong. That's wrong. That's not the remedy, right? The remedy is not just to be the opposite of Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Don't be a Scrooge. Don't be Bahanga. Be kind. But friends, there are many kind people in this world who have never gotten so much as a parking ticket 
who in themselves are hostile, doing evil deeds, and enemies of God, right? That is, that is our condition. No matter, and the Bible says that no matter how pressing it feels to resolve what we believe our biggest problem in the world is, which was maybe be a marital conflict, a friendship conflict, getting a better job, getting a vaccine, getting out of debt, correcting something in your children's life or in your life, the Bible, Paul, Jesus articulates that our biggest problem is that we need to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God and that we are incapable of doing that on our own. Everyone knows there is a problem, but the Christian knows that the problem is sin and that I am a sinner, hostile and alienated from God, but that God loved the people that hated him. He died for them, washed them, clothed them in holiness, and has killed the enmity that stood between God and man once and for all and has made peace through his blood. If there's one thing that Jewish people know and knew, there is no peace without bloodshed, without sacrifice. There cannot be peace. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Friends, what if I were to say to you that the one thing that separates a Christian from a non-Christian is that we can admit our deep need for Jesus. Because outside of him, we are incapable of loving, obeying, and centering our life on God. Outside of Jesus rescuing us, that we are hostile to God in mind, word, and deed. Does that sound too dramatic? Does that sound uh, too harsh? Friends, but that's exactly what a Christian is. That unless we can come and say, uh, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Unless that is the posture of the human heart, then we do not know what it means to be a Christian. We lack the very thing that a Christian has by grace, the humility to say, I am a sinner, I need a savior, I need Jesus. Right? Malcolm Muggeridge says this, the, 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 pravi- the, excuse me, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. The posture of our heart often is to push back against this when we hear this. That's not true. I'm not hostile to God. I'm not raising my hands. But friends, we have a, we have a very uh, shallow view of what sin is, right? If we say that. Friends, oftentimes what can happen is there could be a, for using a metaphor, just an inner lawyer that comes out, right? The inner lawyer that comes up in our soul and in our heart when we hear hard truths or even when we hear things like criticism. That's not true. Or he or she would have said the exact same thing if they were in my position, right? We make excuses, we make defenses, we, we, we collect data and we make an argument for why we're right. This inner lawyer comes out in the courtroom of our conscience and makes an argument for, no, why I'm a good person. But Paul and Jesus call us as Christians, to fire him. They they call us to admit our deep need for Jesus. And when we do, when we fire him, we receive pardon and say, God, I need your work on the cross. We confess our sin and our inability to, to meet God's demands in and of ourselves, and we see our great hope in the baby in the manger, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a pastor in World War II, says this, who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger. 
Whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high. Whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. Friends, Matthew 5.3 in the Sermon on the Mount says this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is the natural outworking of what it means to become a Christian that only until we admit our spiritual bankruptcy can we be rich in Christ. Can we take Christ by faith? Which means that those who've trusted in Jesus' reconciling act and power to liberate us from sin are wholly new. Therefore, biblically and logically, it makes sense. Christians aren't people who do certain things, right? Church, or don't do certain things. We don't cheat in our taxes or we're sexually pure. But Christians are people who are something new. Something has changed in us and about us because we are something totally new through Jesus. And because of that, therefore, we will do something totally new. Paul is laboring to show us that humanity owed a debt to God that we could not pay, but God in Jesus reconciled us to God. He has canceled the debt. And then not only canceled the debt as in we're just neutral, but then he has accredited to our account all the riches that he had. That we could come to God not only neutrally, but as his child. What is Paul's point, right? Look at verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is Paul's point, right? What is Paul's point? That Christ has completely reconciled you and nothing needs to be added to that for you to stand before God. What stands you before God, what makes you right before God, it's Christ, friends, and nothing, nothing else. Him crucified and, you're having, and him, you being appropriated the benefits of Christ by faith, by faith, that stands you before God reconciled. There was a hymn writer that put it this way. This, this, man, this moved me when I was studying. He says, in heaven, we will be more happy, but you will not be more secure. You may be more happy in heaven, but not more secure if you are a Christian. More happy, but not more secure. You see what he's saying? When you are reconciled to God as you have embraced Christ by faith in your present experience because God has reached out to you in love and grace and drawn you to himself, he has finished his hostility with you and he has finished your alienation from him. He, you are now in fellowship with him, saving fellowship, and you cannot be more reconciled to God than you already are when you trust Christ by faith. You may be one day me more holy, as in we grow in holiness as Christians, but you will not be more secure. When you are in Christ, you're his and his alone. You may be happier, but you will never be more secure, friends. In glory, we will be perfect. In glory, we will be without tears. But we are no more secure in glory than we are now as Christians because of the perfection of the reconciling work of Christ. And this is what Christmas is all about, friends. It's not about being kind. It's not about family jollity. It's not about coming together and what humanity can accomplish when we start being nice to one another. Friends, Christmas, the manger, the incarnation, reconciliation is about us being presented to God by God in fellowship with him because God desires to have fellowship with you more than you desire it for yourself, 
that his aim is to present you, all right? It is God who is presenting us holy, blameless, above reproach. And that's all. We all want that so bad, don't we? Like I said, life, life has been hard for most of us in 2020. Some, someone it reminded me of the old saying, I can't remember who said it, but life is pain. If someone says otherwise, they're trying to sell something, right? Um, I think it may be Seinfeld, I can't remember. Um, isn't that so true? Life can be so painful. But in Christ, our biggest need has just been taken care of. We are reconciled to a holy God. But look, I want to point something out here that, that Chris did a great job of, of talking about. And he says, Paul says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why does Paul say in his body of flesh by his death? Something that the Colossians were wrestling was, was what some scholars say a shaman, some type of spiritual teacher came in and tried to convince the Colossian church that there need to be veneration of angels, worshiping angels, that Jesus is necessary, but you also need to worship Michael, Gabriel, and the lot. And that's why if you, if you go back up, you're seeing the preeminence of Christ. That's why Paul is making one big argument. No, no, not necessary. Christ and Christ alone. But notice something, that he came in flesh Like Chris said last week, he felt itchy straw, a cold night. But not only that, he felt relational angst and pain. He was fully God. But he went through everything that you have gone through even more. How does that help us in our interpersonal relationships? How does does that help us endure suffering? How does that help us endure a year like 2020? Oh, does it help? Friends, Jesus felt itchy straw, a cold night, born into a condition of anxiety and on the run. His whole life was suffering. Born in a dung-filled and smelling manger, lived poor, died poor, lived in humility, died in humility, the most humbling death. Why? For you, for us, to glorify God. Look at what Augustine says. Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, the strength might grow weak, the healer might be wounded, that life might die. Wow. Look at God's character for you, moving heaven to earth. This is what Christmas is about. Not presents, not family, primarily. Not Christmas cheer. It's all about God's character seen in Jesus. God's desire is to present you, to wash you, to love you, and to make you like himself. That is God's aim for you, Christian. One thing I was um, struck by is those words, holy, blameless, above reproach, and really, it, especially being blameless and above reproach, don't we all desire that uh, horizontally? Don't we all desire that in our relationships? And the way I know I desire that in my horizontal relationships if, is if someone in my family critiques me, right? We, that, that lawyer comes up, and we want to make an argument, we want to build data, we say, no, here's why I'm right, right? We want to be blameless, and we, we buck up against the reality that we're not. 
And I, I was convicted when I was studying this that I am not moved by those words as much as I should. I care so much, oftentimes, I struggle with caring so much about what people might think or, or a man's approval. In other words, I can wrestle with God's word about my life and be stirred and moved, but someone says something and I soar, or something, someone makes a critique, and man, my, I can just be down. Oh, how I need and maybe you need an inversion of opinion. We need to value what God thinks about us much more than what man may think about us. That I could rejoice in Christ, I am holy. In Christ, I am blameless and above reproach before a holy God, right? Tim Keller said something that that moves me often, that the only eyes that see you to the bottom love you to the skies. That moves us, friends. And Paul has this, this, this truth as well. He corroborates this in Romans 8, 34. He says this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What is Christ doing right now for his children? What is Christ doing right now for you? Praying for you, loving you, thinking about you. That is a great hope. That is a great work that fully believe will change the way we live. And lastly, we see, so we have our old, old nature that we are sinful. We have our new nature that God is presenting us holy and blameless and above, above reproach before God himself. And then lastly, because of this, we have a persevering hope, right? He has, Paul kind of gives a contingency clause here. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Look at that. that I, I wanna remind us real quickly though that going back to our old nature, that we go from alienated to reconciled, from hostile in mind to having, as Paul says in Romans 5, peace with God. Right? From doing evil deeds to then going from Ephesians 2.10 that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, good deeds which Christ has prepared for the foundation of the world. And from having no hope in this world, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, having no hope in this world and without God, as it says, to being reconciled to God by Jesus and now having a hope that is unshakable. Friends, this is a hope that our heart must believe and that our heart cannot waver. Our, the heart's propensity is to shift, right? Our, our, our joy will be directly tied to our hope. That is, that is an absolute truth. Um, so in other words, if our hope is in man, if it's in money, if it's in anything on this earth, your, your job, happiness will, will come and go, friends. Happiness will come and go. Happiness is fickle and hollow, Happiness comes and it goes multiple times throughout the day, but joy is something that a Christian can have in droves when they're going through immense suffering. You know, 2020 has brought immense suffering. It has probably killed our happiness multiple times, but a Christian can have joy in a year like 2020 and should. In other words, 2020 may eat happiness for lunch, but it can't touch joy. It can't touch Christian joy. Why? Because our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the promises of God that he makes to us, 
right? That not even a hair on your head is unnoticed. God knows them all. And therefore, don't worry about the future, right? That's what God calls us to. Does that mean we're not supposed to think about the future and make plans? Of course not, right? We don't get in our car and say, God, tell me not to worry about the future. I'm just gonna run this red light and trust the Lord. No, we, that's, not, that is a, that's not wisdom, right? It's, it's good to think about the future. It's not okay to be dominated and controlled by the future. Why? Because Jesus says, not even, uh, I know the doves that fly through the air by name. You who are much more of them. Don't you know I know you? Don't you know that I'm thinking of you? Right? Elijah and I recite one thing almost every night, my son, my oldest son. It's this, what is our only hope in life and in death? That we are not our own, but we belong to God. Let me end with this. We see our need to persevere in the, in the Christian life as Christians. Verse 23, continuing in the faith, stable and steadfast. That word stable and steadfast is the same word that Paul actually uses in Ephesians 3. And it just means a foundation, right? That there is a foundation, unmoved. Don't give up, right? This is what he is saying. Perseverance, one thing we notice in the Bible is that perseverance proves faith's genuine character and then therefore is indispensable in the Christian life. I'll say that again. Perseverance proves faith's genuine character and therefore is indispensable in the Christian life. Hebrews 3.14 says this, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Perseverance in the Christian life does not happen apart from Christ in us, friends. And for Christians, perseverance actually produces something. We're not called to perseverance just because because so, or because it doesn't do anything, but it actually produces something. We see this in Romans 5, 3 through 5. Paul says this, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proving character, and proving character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts and through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Friends, perseverance will produce hope. And all of us will be called in the Christian life to persevere. Trials, temptations, things will come. But Paul says to us, just as he says to the Colossian church, don't give up, persevere, remain steadfast. I'm reminded of, let me close with this, I'm reminded of um, what Sam says to Frodo in the two towers. Obviously, if you're a Lord of the Rings nerd like myself, you will appreciate the Battle of Osgiliath, as I'm sure all of you know what I'm talking about. No, none of you do. Um, so Osgiliath, there's a battle in the two towers where Frodo and the, uh, and the Lord of the Rings is called to take a ring to Mordor, uh, but he goes through a journey and, and encounters many obstacles and challenges. And one of those is a war uh, in a town called Osgiliath, and he is absolutely laid low. And Frodo says to Sam, I just can't do this anymore. And if you've seen the, the movie, you know what Sam says. Sam, his best friend, his companion on the journey to help Frodo accomplish the task to put the ring in the volcano and kill Sauron, says this. Sam says, I know. It's all wrong. 
By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't know, you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. Friends, Christian perseverance happens. Christians persevere only because Jesus, born in humility, living in humility, dying in humility in your place, holds on to you. This is the hope that Christmas is all about. God came down and did it. He reconciled us to himself. And this is the greatest hope of the entire universe. Charles Wesley got it right and Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Let's pray. God, thank you for the hope of the gospel, the hope of Advent that calls us to look at the most unlikely of places, a manger. Our hope is in a weak baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, clothed in humility, and yet it was you, the Almighty. Thank you, Lord. Eternity will be spent thanking you for the pardon you have given us, but we cannot help but thank you in Christmas time, especially for your life. We pray that the Advent spirit would be in us all year long, not only in the Advent and Christmas day. God, thank you for paying our debt, which we could not pay, and thank you for your loving kindness, making us secure in you, reconciling sinners to a holy God. We love you, God. Help us to persevere in the faith. For while the future is unknown, you are not. We know you and see you in this Advent season. Amen.